You're listening to an Anazal Ministries podcast. Who is the butcher of Jagal? How can war criminals ever seek penance for their actions? And how exactly did Jesus atone for mankind? Well, if you are looking for a podcast with all of the answers about salvation, penance, that's going to help you better understand your faith, then you have come exactly to the wrong place. But if you're looking for a show that's going to ask the big questions, struggle with theological implications that uh, people have been thinking about for thousands of years, or is going to reflect on the implications of Star Trek and the different <laughs> in the newest episode of Strange New Worlds, then you've come exactly to the right place. You found the show for you. For you. This is a special crossover episode of Systematic Geekology and Dummy for Theology. Um, I am one of the many hosts of Systematic Geekology, and I do my own podcast, Dummy for Theology. Um, check out both shows in the show notes. Be sure to rate and review wherever you get your podcast. And yeah, we're going to have a good time today. Make, and, um, you know, we're both of these shows are part of the Anazal Ministries podcast network. That's the AMP network. So if you're not subscribed to that anywhere, if you're not following on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, make sure you follow the AMP network to get all of our shows. A few other ones also involved. I'm with the whole church podcast as well. Um, we, we got Brandon Knight, My Seminary Life. Christian Ashley does Let Nothing Move You. We have the Bible After Hours. It's a fun one. So just be sure to check all that out. We have a few more shows coming up soon. Like I mentioned, I'm Joshua Knoll, and I'm just a dummy who loves God, loves theology, and Star Trek, and I hope to show my love for God by studying and thinking deeply about topics people smarter than me have been thinking about for thousands of years. So today, in this special episode, we're going to be discussing the theological implications of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, specifically Season 2, Episode 8, titled Under the Cloak of War. The reason this isn't just a systematic ecology episode, uh, there's a few different reasons, but largely has to do with the fact that uh, I was the only one who's been keeping up with it. So, you know, not to geek shame my fellow host, but uh, y'all could do better. Y'all could do better. <laughs> and, and what I was thinking about through some of the implications, for those who don't know, Star Trek is largely just philosophy done in space. Um, but when I was thinking about some of the implications of what they were talking about, I realized atonement, I realized salvation, all these different things were part of what they were discussing. And there's been a lot of disagreement about that throughout the last 2000 years in the church of exactly how does atonement work? Exactly how does salvation work? And I just thought to myself, you know, make for a great dummy for theology episode. So since none of my other hosts are coming up or kept up with the show. And since there's a lot of implications of things I wanted to talk about anyway, from the side of theology, decided we do a surprise bonus crossover episode. I'm going to review the show first. Um, the show has a lot to do with like PTSD and trauma. So, you know, trigger warning, if you're not prepared to think about trauma, you know, I'm talking about some about my accent a little bit more in detail than usual, you know, just be prepared for that. But uh, after we review the show, I'm looking at some of the different views the church has had that regard some of those same theological implications, specifically looking at atonement and penance are the two big ones. Um, so first, let's talk about Star Trek. Let's uh, just kind of give you a little bit of, of uh, context. So Star Trek Strange New Worlds is uh, something I've been really into recently. The episode we're talking about, Under the Cloak of War. So what you see in this episode, anyway, is we have 
Doc Ra, who used to be a general who was part of the Klingon army during the Klingon Starfleet War. So the Academy and um, the Klingons were at war for a long time. It's been a, a big staple of Star Trek was kind of reflecting on that war, what it meant, how the values could or could not mesh together. One of my favorite, a lot of my favorite Star Trek movies have to do with the Federation figuring out what to do with the culture of the Klingons that is a war culture. Because, you know, going back to like church missionary stuff, you don't want to make them become like you just so you can have peace. But at the same time, it's how do you have peace with a people whose entire culture revolve around war? You know, it reminds me a lot of like current day America when you're thinking of like gun culture. Well, we want to have peace, diversity of thought, but how, how do you have peace with those who are celebrating violence more or less? And it gets it gets weird. It gets hard to keep up with. Um Today, particularly, uh, the reason this episode spoke to me so much that I wanted to do an entire bonus episode just reviewing the show is because of my own experience with trauma. I will not diagnose myself with PTSD. You know, my doctor wants me to go see if I have it. But for me personally, it's not going to make a lot of difference if I have that label or not. I might still go get it diagnosed one day. I'm just not diagnosing myself on air. And I'm just letting you guys know my experiences. I have dealt with trauma. And I have some of these symptoms. So a lot of what they talk about here did hit close home for me. It was very emotional for me. So just prepare with that. As far as my history with Star Trek, you know, I say I'm a, just a dummy who loves God. I have a, um, I have a degree in Bible. It's my bachelor's, but I don't I haven't been to seminary yet or anything like that. So I'm like, yeah, I just like theology. Same thing is kind of true with Star Trek. I grew up watching the old movies. I never really got into the other stuff until the last Two years or so, I started really getting into Deep Space Nine, um, Enterprise, uh, Voyager, some of the other series they have. Lower Decks is really what got me into a lot of it. So my history is I've watched a lot in the last two years, but I'm not like the expert. I'm probably just a dummy for Star Trek as well. So keep that in mind. Don't be too hard on me if I mispronounce some stuff or get a little bit of the details wrong. Um, this show, though, we're talking about Strange New Worlds. You're going to see some of the timeline is a little bit, I, you know, I don't want to say screwy. It's just a little bit harder to follow necessarily. So our time, Star Trek is meant to be like way in the future of our own time. So it's supposed to be something we could imagine that would happen. So what you'll see is we have our time. Then there's Star Trek Enterprise, Star Trek Discovery. Season one and two was before Strange New Worlds. So those two seasons where we get introduced to Captain Pike, we're going to talk about later, who's the main protagonist of um, Strange New Worlds. So he's in Discovery Season 2, gets his own spinoff in Strange New Worlds. After Season 2, Discovery jumps into the future. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Strange New Worlds is directly the prequel to the original series. So that's where we're going to see Spock. We're going to see Kirk. Some of those original series characters are in Strange New Worlds because this is happening right before those the old show, the original show. Um, the original films happen after that. Star Trek Next Generation. So if you know Captain Picard, those are hit. That's his show. Then the movies from Next Generation. Then we have Deep Space Nine, which is probably my favorite series. That one or Strange New Worlds, the one we're talking about today. Probably my favorite. Voyager, that's Captain Janeway. Then we have the new Picard show. And then we have where Discovery jumped way into the future. And then the two current animated series, Lower Decks and Prodigy, happened after that. So the when we're talking about the Klingon Starfleet War, that's... The first season of Discovery a little bit before, well after Enterprise, but before Strange New Worlds happens. 
and before the original series. So all throughout the original series and the old movies, they keep referencing this war that we haven't seen. And in this episode we're going to talk about today, episode eight, season two, Under the Cloak of War, we see some flashbacks to the final battle, the Battle of Jagal from the Klingon Starfleet War. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time talking today about, not all, but most. So, yeah, the the main plot of this series or of this episode. So the series right now we've been going through season two has been a lot about identity. We've only seen people's past and how their past affects who they are now. We even have one episode of the Lower Decks people way in the future from that timeline I showed you. They jumped into the past of Strange New Worlds, and then we see what people's identity are like in the face of the future. I'll talk more about that on an upcoming What's New episode with uh, Systematic Ecology. So if you're not on that YouTube page, make sure you go to Systematic Ecology's YouTube page and check that out. That'll be August 7th. We'll go live with that, and they'll be on the main feed for Systematic Ecology after that. But it's been all about identity. In this episode, we kind of get a little bit, we get into the past of a few of the characters, but particularly Dr. Mbenga. Um, he is a phenomenal character. He's the doctor. He's so cool. But he also keeps hinting at his history with war, how he also has history doing some of these battle scenes and stuff like that. And you kind of finally see what's been hinted at this whole series during this episode. So kick things off. You have Doc Ra shows up on the ship greeted by none other than Captain Pike. Captain Pike kind of walks around the ship. You see all this stuff and they walk in on another character that I like a lot. We have Erica Ortegas. She's awesome pilot kind of deal. She is talking about how he was told it was told the story where Doc Ra attacked his own men. He's known as the Butcher of Jagal, and he killed his own men to escape. He's the one who gave all the orders for children and stuff to be killed on this planet. He is a war criminal from Starfleet and the Klingons' perspective because he killed his own men. So she's talking just mad crap about the guy. They walk in, and he's all polite, peaceful, and he's trying to show that there can be a peaceful way, that we can move past what happened at the war. But it's not so easy for some of the other characters. We have Christine Chapel was the nurse, worked with Dr. Mbenga during that last battle of Jagal. And you see them really dealing with a lot of like PTSD kind of symptoms. They're having these flashbacks. They're having the, how do they expect us to just look at a Klingon? You know, at this point, the Federation is still pretty anti-Klingon post-war, but before the peace agreement that they have that we just talked about in like Deep Space Nine and stuff. So Klingons of war culture, they're savages, they're evil. And she just doesn't even like looking at Dr. Mbenga is trying to keep his cool. But you see like the clinch fish, you see the flashbacks, you see the anxiety on them. Um, she, during the series right now, has kind of got a little, little thing, a little love thing with none other than Spock. We all know Spock and they've been talking and she has this line. She says to Dr. Mbenga after dealing with Spock, because Spock's trying to understand, trying to help her. And, you know, he's already really detached from his own emotions. So it's even worse. It's made very evident that he doesn't get it. But when she's talking to Dr. Mbenga, Christine says, why is it so hard to explain to people who weren't there? And she's like, she's explaining, like, we can tell them. And they get that it was traumatic. They get that it was bad. They get what happened, but they don't, you can't explain the feeling. It's kind of what she's getting at. So you go through and they're supposed to be transporting Doc Ra to Starfleet so that he can go do some peace negotiation stuff. He's like one of their ambassadors for the Klingons. He's there 
as an ambassador, as a peace ambassador, they're trying to transport her. But a lot of these people who are in the war, who've heard about Dakra, who fought the Klingons, saw what they did, can't stand to look at them. You see Doc Ross trying to make peace. He keeps negotiating and he keeps reaching out to Dr. Mbenga because he sees that they, we've both been affected by war. You know, he's talking to him about it. You have this one really cool scene here um, where Mbenga was like, hey, is doing a uh, jujitsu. Doc Ross invites himself to join. And you see the scene and the emotion in their interaction where they're not quite saying what they mean, but they're talking about the, uh, talking around the war and Doc Ra is very peace and Mbenga is very hesitant. It's like, I just don't, does not like the guy. And you kind of get that you don't see the whole picture still. But you see, finally, you see Mbenga really show some of his violence, some actual rage in this. Turns out part of why it looks so real, that actor actually does know jujitsu. So what you saw there was real jujitsu, pretty talented, good stuff. At the end of the episode, this is where I, I get into some spoilers, but it's revealed that Mbenga was actually the butcher of Jagal. They all thought that Doc Raw killed his own man and ran away, but really he was fleeing from the real butcher. And he never told anybody because it made for a bad testimony. Telling people that he did the crime and that he repented and became better was a better story, that he was able to spread peace better. He was able to do more good work if he was the butcher. So he never told anybody that what really happened was one of the humans went out and slaughtered everybody and he was just fleeing. And it turned out this whole time, Dr. Mbenga has been living with that guilt, living with this PTSD, this trauma of what he did. So when you see the flashbacks, what you see is he was originally this great war person, just went to just being a doctor. And then after seeing, because he didn't want to be changed by the war, he wanted to go back to his family. But after seeing what they did to a lot of these kids that were coming back to the medical base, he got ticked off. And when Starfleet was ready to leave, he refused. He ends up, he ends up interacting with Christine. This is in the flashback. He gives her this and says, this will tell you my location. I'm going to find this guy. And Christine tells him, when you find him, end him, kill him, make sure he's dead. So in the flashback, Dr. Mbenga is hunting down Doc Ra to kill him because Doc Ra is sending all these people to kill innocent civilians, kill children. And they're having to work on them in the medical bay. And instead of just leaving with Starfleet when he was commanded, he said, no, I'm going to find this guy. I'm going to kill him. And that's where he's killing all of these Klingon. He is the real butcher of Jakal. And whenever that gets revealed, when it gets revealed, him and Doc Ra have a little bit of an argument. They're pushing back and forth. They're uh, whatever. And Dembenga takes out the knife that he used to kill all these other people and stabs Doc Ra in the chest and kills him. And he doesn't really repent. He says, I think the guy deserved it. He killed children. He killed the innocent. He gave the order. The guy deserved to be killed. And they kind of leave it a secret from everybody else. That Mbenga was the real butcher of Jagal. So much deep stuff to talk about in this that I just couldn't get it. Um, personally, if I'm just talking about like emotional weight, storytelling, how good the episode was, I'm going to give it a nine out of 10. But the actual themes, the importance, like I think anybody, whether you like Star Trek or not, whether you're keeping up with the series or not, this episode alone is one that people should watch just to better understand PTSD, to understand like what people think about when they're thinking about war and just war, what it means to think about justice and atonement. This is an episode I think everyone should check out at some point. One of the things that stood out to me, there's a lot of stuff. I'm going to go with the easy stuff first. So we talk about um, lying about testimonies. You know, that's something that happened a lot in church, something I was guilty of at one point, where you feel like you could do more good, right? You can, you can be better negotiator peace, all this stuff. If you have a better testimony, if you were like, you know, I used to be a drug addict, I used to do this, I used to be that, but now I'm saved. 
And a lot of people lie about their testimony to better reach people for Christ. But this is where I hate utilitarianism. I hate it. It's one of my like big peeves is like how many people go along with this. The idea that the end goal justifies the means. Um, and you see it a lot more in like American politics and stuff than you know, we, we typically think of, you know, how many times is the argument about abortion not are we doing the right thing or not? And it's about the end results. It's babies are dead or women are mistreated, not about what is actually happening. And is the act itself bad or good? You know, and all throughout our thing is like typically we're talking about like healthcare, we're talking about taxes, all these things. The thing isn't about the process and what's right or wrong. The thing is, do we like the outcome or do we not like the outcome? And that's why at the end of the day, when that's what you're evaluating things on with utilitarianism, whatever I think the best outcome is, is morally good, whatever it takes to get there. And if that happens to be different than you, then we're just going to argue about what the best outcome is. And that's where you get these arguments that never end. Sometimes the right thing might lead to a bad outcome, but the right thing is still the right thing. So I'm more of a process person. I just don't like utilitarianism, but that's where you get some people lying about testimony saying, okay, well, we just let it slide because he's helping people or, you know, on the other side, you have the same thing. And Bangus thinks, see, the, the, the example here is Doc Roth thinks he should keep lying about his testimony because it's allowing more good and for peace to happen. That outcome is what's best. And Benga thinks this guy did bad. He deserves death. Killing him is thus the best thing because he will be dead. The best outcome is him dead. So then is the best outcome the bad guy dies or is the best outcome peace happens? I'd argue peace happens, but it shouldn't be about the outcome. It should be about the process. Is murder good? No. That's the argument. <sighs> the other things we have, like, is there anything redeemable about Klingon culture or gun culture? You know, I brought that up earlier. And you see that, especially I've been rewatching Deep Space Nine. You see a lot of this where, like... Klingons are all about battle. They're all about war. So even post the peace agreement with um, start with the Academy, you have this like, is there anything redeemable about this mindset of there being honor in the fight, there being honor in war or anything like that? Is there anything redeemable there? I don't know. But that's a big beat throughout Star Trek because we don't want to just make the others like us. That's not the peace we want. We want peace where everyone can have their own culture and diversity and coexist. But how can you have that when their culture is a war culture? That's when we get into stuff like the just war theory. So looking at these two guys uh, on the left is Augustine. On the right is Thomas Aquinas. And both of them had their own takes on just war theory. When is war just? It was just when it helps the needy. It's just when it's helping protect people. Um, you know, when, when the best outcome, like a lot of the just war theory stuff is about the outcome. But these two guys, they, they have a lot to talk about it. I'm not going to go in detail about the just war theory today because I'm more interested in talking about atonement. But it did bear mentioning. So I bear to mention, what is PTSD? That's our next slide. That's our next conversation. And that's not, a, um, not an easy thing to talk about. If I had to point to any part of the show is when, again, when Christine says that line, why is it so hard to explain to people who weren't there? And it's true. You know, it's a lot like, um, I forget what they're called, but the, the, uh, the horses that were dead in Harry Potter, where only those who have seen death can see them. There's a lot of this thing where like those who've experienced trauma relate to one another in ways that those who haven't cannot. So, of course, on the ship, you have these who were in the war, who were there at the Battle of Jagal. They relate to each other in a way the rest of the crew who know it was bad and what's whatever simply cannot understand. Um, I'm not equipped to do as a psychologist, anything like that, to tell you guys what to do. 
I will give you one resource that I think points to a lot of other good things. Um, podcast of a a friend of mine, uh, Wednesday with Watson. Uh, so Amy Watson runs this show. Hundred episodes in, they're about to start season five, I think. And um, she goes through her own traumatic experiences. She was in uh, some sexual trauma. She had abuse throughout her life, and, and some wild stuff happened to her that she was able to find a way through to make sense of. And um, now she creates resources for other people and she tells her story and how she found God in the darkness, in the trauma. I highly recommend that show. So if you haven't checked it out, Wednesdays with Watson, whether you're dealing with your own trauma or, you know, someone who is, does have like some traumatic experience, I think you should check her show out, look at the resources she suggests and um, really follow through on that. I think it's a useful resource. Psalm 42. Verse seven, one of those one of those verses that gets used out of context a lot. It's another one I want to talk about. It's um, the psalmist is writing, talking about how defeatist they feel, how everything's terrible and bad and whatever. And it's in the verse says this this line of like deep calls out to deep, deep reaches out to deep, or deep after deep. And it says wave after wave, depression is like washing over me. And then the next verse is him calling out to God. The way it gets misused, and this is. Small pet peeve is when people antagonize other people for taking a verse out of context. Oh, you know, even if it's out of context, if it's helping them and it's not anti-biblical and they're not saying this is what the verse means, just let people have what they need. It's fine. But anyway, what it's actually about, it's not about, you know, a lot of people use it as is like the deep part of me calls out to God because what's in me desires God. It's not necessarily about that. I'm going to talk about that word call to or after or reaches out to because there is a lot of like double, triple entendre, deep reaches out to deep, deep after deep. I want to talk about my own experience and how it makes sense to me too. So I was in a car accident in 2016, 2016. That's my car afterwards. That's what it looked like. Yes, I was in the driver's seat when that happened. It was rough. It was a hard, hard time in my life. And I found since then, there's certain people I relate to that I never understood before. There's people who I can talk about the accident and they just don't get it. They know it was traumatic, but they can't quite grasp what I'm talking about. They just know it was bad. Then you have those people who've been through something similar and it's like you connect in a way that you couldn't possibly connect to others. And that's where that, that line, when Christina says, why is it so hard to explain to people who weren't there? I get it. Like, I could tell you exactly what happened in the accident, exactly what happened with my surgeries, all that other stuff. And you'll be able to understand what I'm saying. You'll be able to like step by step walk through. Okay. That's what happened. If you haven't experienced something similar, that kind of trauma doesn't translate very well. How it carries with you every day doesn't translate. Like I could tell you I'm in pain every day. I can tell you that I get like little flashbacks of a yellow pickup truck every now and then, but it doesn't sit the same way unless you've experienced something similar. This isn't a pity party for myself. I just want you guys to know where I'm coming from. I've experienced this kind of trauma. And there's a few other things too. But this is just one I'm most willing to talk about that you've probably heard me talk about before. Trauma is real. And it's Dr. Mbenga later in the episode says, some things never heal. You just learn how to manage it, how to work with it. And that's a big thing for a lot of people who've experienced trauma is it doesn't just go away. It doesn't just get healed. What does happen, you learn how to manage it. You learn how to work with it, but it's always a part of you. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it can heal. I can heal anything. You know, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that it's something that people carry with them. And of course, naturally, I seek after people sometimes that I know, understand, and can relate to what I'm talking about. 
my friend group has changed or some people just can't get some significant parts of who I am now because they haven't been through that kind of thing. Deep reaches out to deep. When I look at that, what you're looking at that reaches out to or calls out to is this word kara. So we're talking about um, biblical theology now. It's got some of the definition and stuff here. Um, it's to call out, to recite. I, I highlighted how it's used the most. So a lot of Hebrew literature, especially ancient Hebrew literature, you're supposed to think of where you've heard this word before. It's like a trigger word. It's kind of how they do a lot of their writing. So the most common usage is what I highlight. It's proclaim. Deep proclaims. Deep. And in this context, you know, trauma proclaims trauma. Depression proclaims depression. Defeatist proclaims defeatist. We have a cry for help. You know, a lot of times you'll see this word is calling out to God. God, help me. Deep calls out for help from deep. Those in drama look for one another. Deep summons to summon. Deep to give a name to. I think it's important that you name what it is. You have to name your depression, name your trauma, to call oneself. Deep calls out to itself. The other parts in you be summoned, addressed by name, guest, invite. Deep calls out to deep. I just want to get into that, that when I know I'm, I'm being very Baptist right now, we'll get into that word and kind of what it means. Depression, deep after deep. If you're in depression, a lot of times you seek after others who can feel the same way, who knows what you're talking about. Community, you know, you're calling out to one another. Um, also, when you're when we're talking about like depression, anxiety, that kind of stuff, typically sadness seeks out sadness. You know, when I'm in a sad mood, a lot of times I'm going to look at for sad music, you know, deep calls out to deep. I want more of that. I go further into it a lot of the times community. You know, I'm looking for others who are like me, um, desires, my pain is going to seek out more pain. Um, and this applies to other things too. It's not just trauma, you know, and I think about like, I'm very ADHD diagnosed, all that good stuff, you know, and I know when I talk to other people who are ADHD, there's a level that we can connect with to each other and understand one another that, other people won't get, you know, a lot of people just be like, everybody forgets, forgets stuff every now and then. Everybody hyper focuses on things every now and then. Oh, I forget things occasionally, or sometimes I get sidetracked or, you know, they'll be like, Oh, that's just an ADHD moment. But people who, who really have the same thing as me, it's, it's, you just connect in a deeper way where you truly understand what each other's means in a way that you can't just explain it to someone. So it goes for more than just drama. There's a lot of things like this deep calls out to deep, but in the deep, that next verse, God is there. So, Call out for help. Seek community with one another. Name what it is. Name it. It's trauma. It's depression. ADHD, whatever. Name it. Anxiety. Know that God's there. Call out for help. Seek the community. Push through. Look at those resources. Um, Wednesdays with Watson. Connect with a local psychologist. If your church probably has some connections, if it's a good church, get help. It's okay. So there was that layer of the PTSD stuff there. And then part of that PTSD that Mbanga is experiencing kind of impacts how he views atonement and how he views whether or not Doc Ra can have salvation. Doc Ra is trying to make amends for all the bad that he did during the war where he let innocent civilians get killed and all these other stuff. And he's doing it by lying about his testimony and doing these peace academy things and trying to negotiate peace between the Klingon and the, and the Starfleet. But all Mbanga sees is the Battle of Jakal. He sees these flashbacks. He hasn't left that moment in a lot of ways. So that PTSD that he has experienced and Benga's experiencing makes it impossible for him to give Dakra another chance. That's why he's glad he's dead at the end. He says some things will never heal. He's working on one of the medical bays at the end. He says, well, I get to work a little bit longer. 
I've renegotiated the powers, whatever he says, and he says, so it might not be fixed, but it's manageable. Some things are just unfixable. I don't know if that's tr really true of trauma or not. I'm not a psychologist. I get what he's saying. I think it's an important question to ask ourselves. Are there some things that never heal? Is there some trauma that doesn't leave? Is there some depression that just sticks? And what do we do with it if that's the case? I think we seek out for God. We seek out community deep, calls out to deep. But then that goes to atonement. How can we atone? Is there a way to atone for war crimes? Is there a way to make amends for the amount of evil that Doc Ra did during the Battle of Jagal? Which makes me think, how could Christ earn our salvation? How was he able to atone for what we've done, the evil that we've committed? So this is where we get to a lot of the dummy for theology side of things. So let's start here with the Catholic Church does not believe you can earn salvation. That is not what their doctrine says. It is not the point. Don't, yeah, don't do that. Um, there have been many, many theories about how Jesus has atoned for us over the ages. Um, we're going to talk a lot about what the Catholic Church belief is around penance and retribution and that kind of stuff later. But I want to go through the history of how the church has viewed atonement. Jesus, we, we what we know, the Bible says, because Jesus, we are saved. Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose again. All of that had something to do with us being able to be saved now and have retribution paid for our sins. What does that look like? What do we mean when we say atonement, that Christ atoned for us? Tons of different theories out there. I'm going to go over seven that the churches believe, and I'm going to not do it in what I think is the best to worst order or anything like that. I'm just a dummy. I don't know the right answer. I'm going to give you some of the theories, tell you what smarter people who are smarter than me have believed it and came up with it. And I'm going to try and do it in kind of like chronological order of when these were kind of believed or came up in the church. So first, we're going to talk about Christian universalist theory. Hang in there. I know a lot of people already want to check out because universalist is a bad word in a lot of Christian groups. But I think it is important for us to talk about at least briefly Christian universalist theory. Um, and this was what a lot of the church believed for earlier on, you know, thinking of Clement of Alexandria in the second century um, and third century. And then a lot of people today, even, you know, think about like Pete Enns is a scholar I really enjoy today who kind of falls under this theory. So Jesus sacrificed. This is kind of what Christian universalist. His sacrifice was enough to reconcile and atone for all sin of all time, period. Jesus atoned for all of sin. Salvation is not being saved from hell. A lot of Christian universalists don't think there is a hell or think that no humans will go to hell. But rather, they think that salvation was from sin and the bondage of sin. Jesus alone was enough. He made amends for our sin, point blank. Then we're going to get into ransom theory. Um, ransom theory, a little bit different. And the, the picture up, we see Christ on the cross. I just like this. When we're talking about this, I like this image up. Um, it's not too bloody or gory or anything, but it reminds us. What are we talking about? So this is, picture is uh, called Christ Crucified by Diego Velas Velasquez. 1632, he's a Roman Catholic, painted this. I think it's a beautiful painting. The ransom theory might be a little bit more familiar to some people. Christ paid Satan off for our freedom. So but when we sinned, we kind of became subjects to Satan, and Christ went and paid that debt so that we could be free from Satan. Um, the belief sort of that Adam and Eve sold their souls when they sinned, and we all inherited the consequence of that deal until Jesus bought us back. So when we think about some of the smart people, that's like really early on this was believed by a lot of Christians. We think of um, some of the church fathers, Origen in the second and third century, and Augustine in the fourth and fifth century. So 400 years, this is, you know, big church primary thought. We owed Satan because we sinned. And when we sinned, we kind of bought into his kingdom and Christ paid that price. 
another atonement theory. We have the recapitulation theory. The whole story of Jesus is God's retelling of the story of humanity. So the recapitulation theory kind of has this view of God is retelling the story of humans through the life of Jesus. The climax of the story of mankind is when Jesus lived out our duty by being obedient to God as a human. We were unable to do our duty, but Christ came and did it for us. He lived how humans were supposed to live. And that's how he atoned for our sins in this theory. So Uranius, second century, Maximus the Confessor, sixth and seventh century, really popular early on in the church. Another atonement theory, satisfaction theory. Um, rather than a debt to Satan, so this is kind of a, um, a counterpart to the ransom theory is the satisfaction theory. So rather than a debt to Satan, humankind has a debt to God for our transgressions against him. Sin is us going against God, so we owe God. Jesus paid our debt to God. So God became man, died for our sins, paid the debt to God for us so that we can be made right with God again. So um, the reason it was kind of thought of, this was thought of, of um, Anselm, 11th century, and it was largely because the ransom theory kind of gives Satan too much power. Like Satan owns us, but really God is the one in power and he owns us. So this is kind of just a flip argument to that. Then we have the moral example theory. So here's another atonement theory. Um, we have Jesus' death was meant to move mankind to see the love of God and change our behavior around Jesus' example. So Jesus lived how we should have lived. His sacrifice of love was the ultimate example of who we were meant to be. And through that example, we are inspired to be better. So that's the moral example theory. Um, Peter Ablard, I think, is the one who came up with this in the 11th and 12th centuries, kind of when he had. Next is probably the one most people are familiar with, especially if you grew up in kind of an evangelical Baptist background. We have the penal substitution theory of atonement. Um, that's where God's character, who God is, does not allow him to keep from punishing evil. So because of who God is, his righteousness and wrath requires him to punish us, to, to punish sin. Sin has led to death. That's just kind of a law like physics. Sin equals death. Um, so Jesus served as our substitute for the punishment to fulfill the requirement of God's character, his wrath and righteousness. And now when we accept salvation, Christ's righteousness is imputed onto us as a counter to penance and indulgences. So rather than us having to like pay our way off or pay the church, or do something to earn it, um, this theory was mostly came up by the, ref, the reformers. So we're thinking like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and that like 16th century kind of stuff. And it was mostly came up as like a counter to the sacrament of penance of no, Christ already paid for us. We don't have to do anything. And it wasn't a pay off our debt situation. It was God's character required him to punish sin. Christ was our substitute. Next theory I want to talk about, this will be the last one today, is the Christus Victor theory. So, Another theory of atonement, Jesus won victory over sin and death and the devil. Jesus came down, kicked the just kicked the tail of death, destroyed sin, beat the crap out of Satan, and was like deuces. Rather than paying a debt, he defeats Satan. So he doesn't we don't owe anything to Satan. Christ didn't pay off our debt, but rather Christ just won the battle for us. He just came down and beat up Satan. Um then we're thinking about this theory, think about like Gustav Alun. Um, 19th and 20th century, he argued that Augustine and Origen really meant this. Their ransom theory wasn't really we owed Satan. It was really Christ came and defeated Satan. That's kind of what he thought they actually meant. But their theories were the ransom theory. So this kind of like a spinoff of the ransom theories, the Christus Victor theory. So we have a bunch of different theories of the atonement of Christ. How 
did Jesus atone for our sins? Did he pay off our debt? Did he give us a great moral example? Did he take the punishment that we deserved? What was it? How did Jesus atone for us? Well, that history is going to coincide pretty directly with the history of the sacrament of penance or of reconciliation. I'm not going to go over too much in detail here, but I think it's worth mentioning what is penance. Um, yeah. So when we're thinking about penance, what we're thinking about is um, the, the sacrament where you go, you make a confession, the priest says, God forgives you. And then he says, if it's a certain kind of sin in the Catholic church, this is depending on your tradition. It gets really different depending on what kind of church you're going to. But um, a lot of the Catholic church, depending on what type of sin you are, the, the priest will tell you something to go do, not to earn your salvation, but as a reflection that you've been forgiven. Like Because you're forgiven, you should go do this now, sort of the idea. It gets confused a lot, even within the Catholic church. But I, I believe since the Council of Trent, that's what they actually do teach. So the Bible states to confess our sins to one another. That's sort of where this starts off as. So we look in Ephesians, confess your sins one to another. The early church kind of developed a practice around this, where those who were anointed directly by Jesus were the apostles, would administer confessions and give advice to reconcile. In that early version, God is still the one forgiving. God's doing the forgiving, but the apostles and the bishops who were appointed by the apostles were kind of just speaking on behalf of God. Um, all the way up through uh, this kind of Basil the Great, fourth century is kind of stuff we're looking at here. So that be eventually becomes a public affair. Um, you confess in front of everyone. In front of everyone, you're told what you should do to make reconciliation happen. Um, and that's because sin is thought was thought to be both against God and the community. So you don't just need God's forgiveness. You need the community's forgiveness because you also sin against them. By the fourth century, sin and breaking the law of Rome were kind of one and the same thing. So you, a lot of that Christian nationalism we see today in America, people talk about, started with Rome. Um, Pope Leo I and Augustine saw that it was the bishop and not God doing the forgiving. So this is one of those times that I really don't like Augustine's theology here. But he argues, along with the pope, the bishop was the one doing the forgiving, not God. Thomas Aquinas, my least favorite favorite theologian, probably. Um, it's funny. I started off as a thing that TJ had a whole thing out against him and was like, oh, the guy, I don't like him. The more I read about his stuff, the more I'm like, TJ might be right. Not a huge fan of Thomas Aquinas. If you don't know who uh, TJ is, check out Systematic Ecology or the whole church. He's just one of our co-hosts over there. The greatest co-host of all time, we say. So worth checking out. Um, but Aquinas mistakenly taught, and he, I think he really believed it, that um, the early church believed that the priest was the one doing forgiving. So he kind of made it seem as though this was always what was taught. Um, and thanks to his influence, the atonement wording changed. So rather than may God have mercy on your souls, which is what they would, the priest would say at the end of confession, it became, I absolve you of your sin. So it went from may God have mercy to I absolve, thanks to Aquinas. After the Reformation, we talked a lot about what happened during the Reformation um, how they kind of did this pushback of, nope, God's the one doing for, sin, forgiving. It's not about indulgence. It's not about sales. Your penance doesn't earn salvation. It's just a reflection of salvation. Well, thanks to the Reformation, a lot of the theology taught there, the Catholic Church did a, kind of a reexamination of itself during the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent is just another one of those interesting post-Reformation things, but it, it reflected and changed a lot of, not necessarily changed theology because they believe tradition is also authoritative, but it challenged how the thought. So here the Catholic Church clarifies that God is the one doing the forgiving. It is by faith alone that Jesus' sacrifice was enough for everyone of all time. 
But also they taught, thanks to the Council of Trent, they, they state that the penance, the sacrament of penance and reconciliation was necessary to stay in communion as a response to God's mercy, not to earn God's mercy. So it's not that you won't get into heaven or anything like that, but in order to stay in good communion with the church, you do need to do penance. You need to make reconciliation. And the priest will tell you what actions to do based on what kind of sin kind of deal. Um, I know there's a lot about the Catholic church. A lot of other Protestant denominations still have things like penance or retribution, confession, that kind of things. Um, I think it's important to look at because it does tell us something about what should we do? In response to salvation, what should we do in response to forgiveness? We don't get to just, you know, be the butcher of Jagal, kill all these people, run away and act like everything's fine, lie about our testimony, everything's fine. We should do something. Tell people the truth. Make up for our wrong. Help those we've harmed. There should be some kind of, should be some kind of retribution, some kind of penance should be paid. Um so here I have up a picture of a book. This is another uh, resource I would like everybody to check out. It's the Unfinished Reformation, What Unites and Divides Catholics and Protestants After 500 Years. Um, it's written by Greg Allison and Chris Castaldo. Greg Allison, we've, reviewed, we've uh, interviewed him about this book and a few others on the Whole Church Podcast, another podcast I'm a part of. Um, I couldn't recommend this enough. You know, he's just fantastic guy, fantastic book, um, speaks a lot of what was reformed in the Catholic church after the Protestant reformation? What happened during the council of Trent? What happened? That's like unspoken in the Catholic church since then. Great resource. Um, interesting to think about and just look at what the Catholic church has been doing since that time. So trying to wrap all this up, our ideas of what is able to be healed, what can be fixed as in Bhagavad calls it, what consequences or atonements need to be made for our mistakes? How, does Christ's atonement work? And whether we practice the sacrament of penance all have a lot of implications on other important doctrines like our faith, salvation, character of God, state of man, doctrines of sin and hell, etc. And Benga believed his trauma could never be healed. He believed the consequences of the Klingon, the damage done from that war, would never be healed, can only be managed. I don't know what I believe when it comes to that. I know that, you know, it's tricky. It's hard to think about. And I know that what we do and what we do end up deciding we believe has a lot of implications, not only on our actions and the church committees, politics, all that stuff, but also on other doctrines. We're just mentioning some of these doctrines above and how it affects them. When we think about salvation, this is the most obvious one. We're talking about atonement. Um, did Jesus already pay the price for us? Do we have to do anything or is it already paid? Um, can we backslide? Is it possible to lose your salvation? Right? I mean, if it's a debt that he paid off to Satan, could I become in debt to Satan again? Um, was Jesus' sacrifice enough for all of us? Is there anything else needs to be done? Did he sacrifice? Was his substitute enough? Should I also have to sacrifice? Does everyone get a second chance? You know, is this a once and done, he paid that to God, you better not get in debt again? Is this like continual forgiveness? Do we all get a second chance, even more criminals? Do we have to make atonement? If if um, Doc Ra on his deathbed would have asked for forgiveness? Should he have gotten forgiveness, even after everything he'd done? Does Satan have power over us? Does he need to be paid? Is the debt or consequence of our sin already paid for, or is there still something we have to do? All right, then we think about the character of God. That's also influenced by a lot of what we talked about. Is God angry? Is he in need of taking it out on something? Did God hold a debt over us that needed to be paid? That tells us something about the character of God, right? Is God able to just forgive us all, or does he require that we ask for forgiveness or anything like that? 
all of those things that can tell us something about the character of God as well when we think about atonement. The state of man. Are we all already free from sin? That tells me a lot about man, right? Like, we're already free from sin. I don't have free sin anymore. That We're good. It tells you a lot. Do we need to accept salvation to avoid hell? Is hell real? Right? You know, it tells me a lot about the state of man. Do I need to do something? Am I going to hell? Is hell even an option on the table? Are we still in the likeness of God? Or has that changed? Do we still owe God or Satan something? Should we look to Jesus' sacrifice for repentance or inspiration? What is it? Am I looking to him for repentance? Am I looking to him to be inspired in how I should sacrifice? These things impact a lot of what it means to be man and what it means to be a Christian human. Our doctrines of sin and hell. You know, this is the last one I'm talking about. Um, are we saved from sin or are we saved from hell? That tells us a lot about that doctrine. It's kind of what you believe about atonement. Does sin still have a hold on us? Can Christians backslide and go to hell? Is hell even real? Will anyone go to hell? Or did Jesus kind of negate the need for that? What we believe about atonement tells us a lot about hell, tells us a lot about sin, the state of man, all of that. And I don't have any clear answers for you guys. Um, I think all of these thinkers who believe different theories of atonement, well, they're all a lot smarter than I. Um, I think you should do your own research, really struggle with this and think through what does it mean when we say Jesus atoned for our sins? What do we mean by that? And I have three takeaway questions for everybody to kind of keep studying, ponder on your own, and just kind of this is what I want us to take away. Not any answers, not any actions, but these questions I want you to think on your own time and just kind of struggle with this. How could trauma impact your view on forgiveness and penance or retribution? How could trauma impact your view on retribution and forgiveness? Could you be hurt in such a way that it would change how you view what's required for forgiveness? Or have you been hurt in such a way that it changed your view? If Jesus already atoned for everything that you need, why would you choose to follow him and live righteously? So if you believe that that's the case, that every, he already atoned for everything, everyone's going to be saved in the end. If that is what you believe, why should you still follow Jesus and live righteously? If it's not what you believe, won't you ask yourself, if that were the case, do you still have another reason that you would follow Jesus and live righteously? Is that the only reason is for atonement or is there another reason? Last question, what do you think about? Can you be right with God and still need to do work to make amendments with man or to, you know, to be in communion with the church, to be in communion with those around you? Can you be right with God and still in need to do works to make amendments with man? So those are three questions. How can trauma impact your view on forgiveness? If Jesus did already atone for everything, do you have any other reasons why you would follow him and live righteously? And can you be right with God and still need to do works to make amendments with man? For me, those are three big questions that I don't have an answer to. So I hope you're all just as confused as I am and that you're inspired to keep studying these great theologians and thinkers more deeply on this topic going forward in your own faith journeys and to start watching Star Trek Strange New Worlds. It's worth it. If you haven't watched it, check it out. Check out both our shows with the links in the show notes. Be sure to rate and review wherever you know, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on YouTube, follow us. All that good stuff. And remember, we're all a chosen people, a geekdom of priests. Thank you for joining this Tell Me on my journey to learn more about God and to love him better. I hope this has helped all of you to worship God in your own thinking and to keep on struggling.
This was an Anazao Ministries podcast. If you'd like to check out other shows like this, be sure to subscribe to the network.